for everyone truly in the Lord, that is our testimony to whatever degree that we embrace it, um, is that in which we grow in the Christ and the knowledge of these very things. And that is part of what the message is about today. In order to praise Him for the glory of His grace, we have to be overcome with the awe of who He is and what great things He has done. I'm going to preach from Psalm 33 this morning, and if you would hear and listen and follow along in the Word of God that He has so graciously given to us, hear the Lord as He speaks to us from this psalm. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp, make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He has chosen for His own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of His dwelling, He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety, neither shall it deliver by any of its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. Thus ends the reading of the word of God. Our gracious Father, we ask now that you would send your spirit upon this tremendous text, and that you will inflame it in our own hearts to bring forth praise worthy of our Creator and our King. We pray that as the Word is preached, it would go forth in the power of the Spirit. This is Your Word, O Lord. And as Your Word breathed into existence all that is, as the breath of God created, we ask now that the breath of God would breathe in us life, and that Your Word would go forth and Create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Open our eyes that we may see your glory and our ears that we may hear of heaven, heaven's anthems. 
and join our heart to, to bring you the glory and the praise that are due to your name, and may that be our delight this day. And so use the word preached now to minister to our spirit and bring us into a higher realm of praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The Psalms are a genre of literature in the Bible that we would call the wisdom literature. In the wisdom literature, it's teaching us the skill or the art of living. As we've considered Job, and it's the art of suffering well. The Proverbs are the art of living well. Uh, we also have Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. But in the Psalms, we have the art of worshiping well. And our worship reflects really who we are. And the Psalms declare to us that we become like what we worship. If we worship idols, we become like them. Dumb and mute and ears that can't hear and just static, lifeless objects. But if we worship the living God genuinely and sincerely, we become like Him. We become godly. Worship is transformational. It will never leave you the same. Because God is our maker, He must tell us how He is to be worshipped. It's not up to the figure of our imagination. It's not up to us to determine how He's to be worshipped. He is our designer. He is our maker. He has created us in His image. And He is the one that has to teach us and tell us how we are to worship Him that pleases Him. And because we're born in sin, we resist the way that He's instructed. We devise our own schemes. We go our own ways. But once we have a new heart... Our worship is on the path to renewal, and the Psalms play an important role to teach us in the art of worship. Michael Barrett, to whom, whom many of you know, was my mentor through seminary and who I've taken the wisdom literature from, and as I've learned much about the Psalms, he says this about the Psalms, quote, the Psalms give patterns for both individual and corporate worship, guiding worshipers in how best to communicate to God in response to His gracious communication. Worship entails meeting with God, with attentive ears to His Word, and while the worshiper is to stand more ready to hear than to speak, he is not to stand silent. The Psalms teach us how to give voice to praise and prayer the suitable expressions of worship, end of quote. Before us is a psalm of praise to our maker and our monarch. And God is called to be the only and the sole object of our worship. But he is also the subject of our worship. He is the theme of our praise. He is the, the subject matter, as this psalm directs us. As we consider the psalm before us, first of all, the psalmist will call us as people, God's people, to praise. We have in verses 1 through 3, the call to praise. As the scripture says there, it says, rejoice in the Lord. 
O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings and sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with the shout of joy. If you play skillfully, you shout with joy. How about that? And that's all a part of the call to praise. C.S. Lewis said that our praise fulfills the joy in what we praise. Praise is a way to fulfill one's enjoyment in something. And people do this naturally with those things that they value. It's the fulfillment of our joy in something that we ourselves delight in. And apart from our praise, our satisfaction in the worth of the object is not fulfilled or completed. A woman who gets engaged goes around like this for a while, or like this for a while. She wants to, to, to show this, this engagement and wants you to delight in it. And so by doing that, it is fulfilling a greater joy. A man, when he bags a big buck, loves to praise its worth. That's why we take pictures of it in the back of our truck. Or put it on the hood of our truck and drive it around town. <laughs> when a man gets a new motorcycle, he likes to show it off. Because in it, there is a greater fulfillment of this. When a musician gets a new instrument, he or she likes to talk about how well it plays. They get excited about it. This is all very natural in the way that we're bringing an object into its full enjoyment. But the greatest object of our praise is the Lord Himself. And we enjoy Him more in the praise that we give. And as the Scripture says here, praise is beautiful. It, it adorns us with the enjoyment of God. He speaks about beauty, that He beautifies us with salvation. We, we worship Him in the beauty of holiness. And praise itself is beautiful. It draws us to it and to Him. We see in verses 2 and 3, the medium of this praise, He calls us to a great medium that He has given to us we call music. When I look out over a congregation of people in the worship of God and I, I see someone who's not singing, I know that something is wrong. Sometimes there's something physically wrong that they simply cannot sing. Other times there's something spiritually wrong when they don't feel like singing and so they don't. But something is wrong. Because the Scripture expects us and even commands us to be a musical people. It's not merely an option or something that we at Heritage do have a particular gift in this, but everybody, no matter what their giftedness or not, has been given music. God has designed each one of us, individually and as a whole, and He's created us in the very beginning with music in mind. He's given every one of us a voice and every one of us an instrument through which we are to praise Him. Music is very much a part of God's creation and His culture. It is important that every church, every Christian, 
every Christian parent cultivate in their congregations, in their own personal life, and in their children a delight for the right kinds of music. God gave us the gift of music primarily and ultimately to praise Him. Now, there are secondary kinds of music. There are tertiary genres of music. But the primary purpose in music is to put voice and emotive praise to our Creator, our Maker, and our Monarch. It is the primary purpose for this tremendous gift. It is also important for Christians to focus this delight that we have for music upward to the praise of our God. Your music ought to lift your soul into the praise of God. And there are even music that is designed for lamenting before the presence of God when our sin has brought calamity or when difficult providence comes our way. See, he's given us some music for every occasion, but the music in every occasion is also to glorify him in worship. So cultivate your musical appetite and be careful with what other additional influences of music might be wrong that would steer us away or draw us away from a God-centered emphasis for which music is intended. See, praise the Lord with the heart. Make mute melody with Him on an instrument of ten strings. Play skillfully. There is an old school of thought which some of the Puritans embrace that I cannot agree. Charles Spurgeon would put voice to this in these words as he articulates a commentary on this psalm. He says, quote, Men need all the help they can get to stir them up to praise. This is the lesson to be gathered from the use of musical instruments under the old dispensation. Israel was at school and used childish things to help her learn. But in these days, when Jesus gives us spiritual manhood, we can make melody without strings or pipes. We do not believe these things to be expedient in worship, lest they mar its simplicity. If we do them, they would hinder rather than help our praise. No instrument is like the human voice. As a help to singing, the instrument is alone to be tolerated, for keys and strings do not praise the Lord. And with that, I would heartily, with conviction, disagree. It is against the clarity of the Scripture that many of our Reformational fathers have made this their conviction. Nowhere in the New Testament have they repealed the use of instruments. Those who argue for such a position state that instruments were a part of Old Testament ceremonial worship, which in of itself was a type. If instruments were in the Old Testament a type, they must have an anti-type, a fulfillment, if you will. And there is none. But nowhere does the Scripture hint that music in this fashion was ceremonial and that it was a type that was fulfilled in Christ. 
Sure, the voice continues to be the grand instrument. And we don't have to praise the Lord with instruments, but it does enhance the praise. Not only is there no exegetical evidence of this notion, it diminishes the use of instruments in the realm of praise and relegates it to other genres of music found outside the sphere of music. But David, who wrote so many psalms, of which even those who would embrace this particular conviction would continue to embrace the singing of psalms inherent in the psalms itself calls for the use of musical instruments to bring glory and praise to God. I think David would be greatly disappointed to hear statements like that. I admire men like Charles Spurgeon. I've gained a lot from his ministry and I think he knows better now. Our praise is heightened with the use of instruments when they are available and there is skill to use them. When there is not instruments available and the skill to use them, our voices will quite suffice. Well, and as we get called to worship, there is a stimulus for this. It's not a, a blind command that is left to us with us just mustering up the energy to worship God from within ourselves or to conjure up some element of praise in the flesh. No, He has given us the stimulus itself for our praise. The book of Ephesians teaches us of what God the Father is doing through Christ in the church for His glory forever. That's what the book of Ephesians is all about. The church is designed and created by God to be a living organism to bring God perpetual glory. A glory that will never exhaust, a glory that will always be fresh, a glory and praise that will endure forever and ever. And this was the gift that God the Father gave to the Son from the people for whom He saved. Christ will have a perpetual, ongoing, never-ceasing praise from the people He saved. And the way that the church does this, the way that they continually bring the freshness of praise, is they learn of God. To know Him. Now, God is an inexhaustible subject. And as we cannot comprehend the height or the breadth or the, or the width or the depth of the love of God toward us in Christ Jesus, we are to comprehend a little more of it each day. And as that comprehension of the knowledge of God grows, not merely in our head, but an intimate knowledge... As a man knows his wife, he, he learns of her. And in this intimate knowledge that God has given us, this is the way we come to know God. And the more we know God, the more will be our praise. And that's why knowing God is not a static event. 
It is the ever-increasing understandable of His inexhaustible being that brings us to a fresh understanding such that it fills us with His love and it flows through us back to His praise. See, it's from a sense of awe that our praise springs forth. If you have no sense of awe for Almighty God, who is our Maker and our Monarch, you will not have much motivation to praise. It will be dry, perhaps dead, but it will not be engaging your spirit and springing forth with the freshness of praise. Notice in verse 3 it says, Sing to him a new song. When the Bible uses the term new song, of which we've reflected on even in Revelation chapter 5 and uh, we, it speaks of it several times in the Psalms. The Bible speaks about the new song in two ways. The first way, it speaks about something that He has put in our hearts. Something that He has done. Psalm 40, verse 3 says, He has put a new song in our mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. As we know from the word that it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And from the heart are the issues of life. The new song that God puts in our mouth is a heart of praise for His glory. But that stems from a new heart that He has given to us in Christ. When He has regenerated us and made us a new creature. And in that newness of the heart that we have. It is for the exaltation of His glory of grace. That's what First Corinthians or Ephesians 1 is all about. To the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three stanzas of the hymn of Ephesians 1. It is the new heart that has now changed us to give us an exaltation and a sense of all of God's love and His presence and His power and His might that brings forth praise from our lips in the new song. The second way in which the new song is used in the Scriptures is once He has given us that new song in our heart, He then commands us to sing with a new song as He does here. It is the second way in which the Scripture uses it as verse 3 is here denoted. Once He has given a new song to turn our hearts upward into His praise of His grace, then the new song that we are exhorted to sing is His praise to His glory. And the idea of singing the new song is bringing God's praise into fresh enjoyment. Making the praise new. Making it fresh. In order to do that, we must be engaged in every part of our being. Our minds must be engaged in what we are saying and singing so that our emotions can reflect them. I have no doubt that probably every one of you <clears throat> could sing all five verses of amazing grace without looking at a hymnal. You can sing it in your sleep. 
You can sing it without thinking about it, but you can sing it without freshness and truly worshiping the Lord. Every time now you come to something that familiar, you're going to have to make it fresh and new in your experience. And you're going to have to focus upon the words. You're going to have to embrace the grace that is herein. It's a beautiful text. But every time you come to it, you must make it new and fresh through faith in those words that you are praising God for the mystery and the power and the glory of His grace that saved you out of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light. This is one of the reasons why we are deliberately slow in our liturgy. We must think with our minds afresh so our hearts can freshly apply the text that we are reciting. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm kind of a slow reader. But as I read, I think. And as I think, I analyze. And as I think about these things, I want to think them anew and fresh. That's why I constantly look at Psalm 92 every Lord's Day morning. I can sing it from memory, but I can focus on it when I'm seeing the words rather than singing it mindlessly. It's good to praise the Lord and to sing praise to His name, O Most High. And as we think about the words of the psalm, we own them fresh. We think about the works of God and rather than just saying that word at the time and the phrase of the psalm, I'm actually thinking about what He has done for us this past week. It may happen in an instant, but our minds can work quickly if we slow down the text to allow them to energize the other parts of it. That's freshness. It makes it new. It puts fresh application to an old principle. Because true praise and true worship will always spring from a sense of awe. And awe is something that we feel because of the way we think. And this whole sense which which encapsulates and envelops and uses the entirety of our person. Bless the Lord, O my soul and all that is within me, bless your holy name. It is physical, it is emotional, it is mental, it is volitional, it is the entirety of man that is engaged in the praise and worship of God because he has been overwhelmed and he senses the awfulness of his creator, his maker and monarch. God is the theme and the subject matter of our worship. We have to get a fresh fill of knowledge of Him. Not just a new kind of head knowledge, but an intimate experiential knowledge that must be fresh to stimulate our all of Him that will then spring forth in praise. And this is the cycle that will go on for the rest of your eternal life. And this is what is wrong with so many churches today. 
It's more about God than it is about man. Or it's more about man than it is about God. That's what's wrong. It's the reason why churches fly the rainbow flag in their church lawns through the whole month of June. Given over the covenant of which God has given to us to the ways of man. They have not been touched with awe of their creator, their maker, and their monarch. Again, I pull a page of notes from my mentor who says, quote, too frequently God is little more than a word that is dropped here or there and from time to time to legitimize whatever else has usurped attention, whether personal testimonies, lauding accomplishments, pulpit tactics, manipulating behavior, usually by guilt or shame, or pep talks, encouraging good feelings about the self. The spiritual lameness that characterizes so much of modern worship traces directly to inappropriate themes or topics addressed. End of quote. Because they forgot to address the topic of God himself. The manner of fresh and genuine praise is knowing God. Our praise is to be with a new song, with freshness. You don't like eating stale bread or soured milk, and God doesn't like our stale praise. We pray so little, our hearts are so shallow, because we truly do not have a good knowledge of who God is. But Let the psalmist now declare him to us as he leads us through Psalm 33. First of all, we are to praise him for his character. What he is like is worth praising. And these days, a sermon or a lesson on the attributes of God is often not well appreciated. It doesn't tell me what to do. It isn't my 12-step process. It's not the recipe for how to have a good marriage or how to be a better worker. It, they are deemed often irrelevant by much of the modern church. But by way of contrast, the titles of sermons used in the Great Awakening compared to what we read on church marquees today, and let me just give you two examples. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. You're familiar with that one. Versus one that I caught driving down the road and saw on a church marquee that says, Relationships are more important than doctrine. Think about that one for a minute. Here's another one. God's sovereignty in the salvation of sinners. Versus, here's, get this one. The little engine that could. I will resist at this moment, to preach against Pelagianism and all of its worth in today's pulpit. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is righteous. The word of the Lord is right, verse 4 says. Right is a standard. And God's word is the standard by which all else is measured. It is the authority. 
We cannot stand in judgment over the Word and determining what is good and what we like and what we don't like, taken like a smorgasbord on a Sunday afternoon. The Word is the standard. It informs us what is right, and we cannot argue that. The only way we know what is right is learned from the Bible and what God tells us. It is His Word. It is the Word by which He breathed the creation into existence, as the passage itself said. It is the, by the breath of His mouth, and His Word is right. It's right. It's truth. So if the Bible says something, we need to understand it, believe it, and obey it. That will be for our good. But our generation has often treated God's Word as suggestive. Thomas Jefferson and one of the founding fathers of our nation, who was a deist and not a Christian, he took the New Testament and he removed every one of the supernatural acts of God and all of the miracles in it, ripped it out, and formed a brand new New Testament, which was his own version of the enlightened rationalist Bible. And so many Christians attempt to do the same thing in their own spiritual lives by, I don't like that, I don't agree with that, we'll tear that one out. They remove what they, or discount what they don't like, or what they don't approve, or what they don't want to obey. But we're called to praise God because His Word is right and His work is done in truth. Unless you get a sense of that pressing upon us, then we will not then spring forth the praise that will glorify Him. It's not about us. This is about Him. We're to praise God, secondly, for what He loves. And He loves righteousness, the Scripture says. Verse 5, He loves righteousness and justice. This is conformity to His Word. If the Word is His standard, if righteousness is the standard, and the Word is that which reveals it to us, what He loves is righteousness and judgment by conformity to that Word. Justice is the requirement that all moral agents adhere to this standard. The law is the standard, then justice is the administration of that law. God loves these things. God loves the conformity to His law by all the peoples, verse 8 tells us. Let all of the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. So the characteristics of God Himself will bring us to an awe. His works, as we see next, His works of creation in verses 6 through 9, will also be that which gives us the knowledge of Him. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By His word, He created. Can you think about that for a moment? Out of nothing, He says, let there be light, and there was light. Every time He says, let there be there was. It came into being. And all of His creation conformed to His righteousness so that at the end of the six days He can look and behold, He says, everything I have created and made, it is very good. 
The call of worship goes out to all the inhabitants of the earth to praise God for His good creation. In fact, this morning's psalm tells us for those who are interested, meaning all of God's people, we can be filled with awe and erupt into praise as we study His works and see that He is great. The works of the Lord are great, Psalm 111 verse 2 says, studied by all those who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endures forever. And the psalm goes on. The end of all of science is to lead us to praise. All of the discovery of God's universe should fill us with the awe of praise. Unfortunately, men suppress this truth in unrighteousness, and they pervert and malign the very gifts of God. But we know better, and when we embrace it and absorb it and think about how awesome the universe is that God has created, we think about how awesome the one is who is the creator. How did he even think about that? How did he even imagine how things are in the world, in the universe in which we live? But we also see in verses 10 through 17, we are to praise Him for His good providence. And, and what He has created, He superintends and He governs and he, 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 he is intimately involved in sustaining these things. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord is what stands forever. God's providence is His governing affairs of His creation according to His desires, according to the way He wants it to be, according to the way He wants it to turn out. And no one can stay His hand. It will turn out exactly as He said it was going to turn out. This is an outworking of a sovereignty in the creation that He has created. God is sovereign over everything He's created by virtue that He is its owner and its creation, creator. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. That's why as the glory goes throughout all of the world. And His counsel, verse 11, says it stands forever. There's not one person in hell that He willed to be in heaven. And there's not one person in heaven that is there because of something that person did to earn His rights or to gain the attention or to merit the favor of God that would so cause God to act that way. There's not one king who has ever ruled that wasn't decreed by God before the foundation of the world. Every plan of a king and his administrations of the nations are from God's hand. 
There's really no such thing as natural disaster because God has ordered every hurricane, every tornado, every drop of rain, every lightning bolt that ever struck or ever will. Every famine, every pestilence, God is in control. God normally works in orderly ways that we can characterize and we can even plan on, but God also is not limited to that. He can work in unexpected and supernatural ways like causing the earth to stop spinning or the sun to go down for a whole day. He can, he can work extraordinarily this way because this is His creation. This is His. Whatever God the Lord plans, that's what He does. He does all of His holy will. And it is a gross sin to think of man over God. A belief that holds that man can thwart the will of God in any realm is sin. Whether we're talking about defeating kingdoms of men or entering the kingdom of God, no man can thwart the will of God. He is either a willing agent or an unwilling agent, but nonetheless an agent of the providence of God. God does what He pleases. There is no one that can stay His hand or give counsel to Him what is right or what is wrong. As Romans 11.33-36 would so eloquently praise Him for. No army, no matter how strong, can do anything out of the will of God. No heart of man can act out of God's sovereign will. No decision can be made that is not from the Lord. Oh, these things are true. These things can be abused. These things can be maligned. But, but we don't want to shy away from these things because of the abuse of man. We want to come up to that knife edge and say, God, the Lord, is maker. And God, the Lord, is monarch. He is sovereign over all that He has created. If you don't embrace that, it will limit the all that you have. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He has chosen for His inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees the sons of man. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions the hearts, their hearts individually. He considers all their works. That's you and me. Proverbs 16.1 says, The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but it's the Lord who directs his steps. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The problem is we don't believe what God's Word says about who He is and how He interacts in all of the affairs of all of the details of our life. And then verses 13 through 15 point our attention to the decisions and the acts of men. They do exactly what He wills to be done. This is a mystery. We need to be overcome with the mystery, not try to figure it out, not try to rationalize it. But it's a mystery. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees the sons of men 
From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart did exactly what God desired it to do. The greed of Nebuchadnezzar defeated the armies of Israel was exactly God's plan. The gracious spirit of Cyrus to equip the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and the temple was directed specifically by God, even to the extent where he prophesied in Isaiah this man by name hundreds of years before the man was even born. And the death of Jesus Christ was all according to God's decree. Acts 4 says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, speaking of God, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentile people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. You're either a willing agent or an unwilling agent, but nonetheless, you're an agent of the providence of Almighty Sovereign God. Now, to give yourself to believe in God's sovereignty with all of its mystery will be a stimulant for praise, not a suppression. When you sense the awfulness of it, when you sense the grandness and the greatness of His person and how he, He thinks about all these things and orchestrates all these things together for good for those who love Him and to those who are called according to His purpose, where He doesn't withhold any good thing from those that love Him, all of these things are mysterious to us. Engaging every part of us in our mind, our will, emotions, and all of our responsibilities. And, and this is a mystery, but it is an awful thing in the good sense of the word. And that's why it says in verse 8, let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe. See, we praise God when we get a sense of who He is. When we come to know Him for how He's revealed Himself when we embrace Him for what He has said, and when we begin to turn our own hearts into a manner in which allows the Spirit of God to bring these truths to bear that fills our hearts with a sense of His grace, that we will exult in the glory of God, and we will be a continual, perpetual glory organism. We praise God, lastly, because He cares for His people. We praise Him for who He is, His characteristics. We praise Him for His creation. We praise Him for His providential sovereignty. And we praise Him because He cares. God promises to His people who fear Him and who trust in His mercy. Notice here in the end of the passage, beginning at verse... um, 16 and onward. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. The horse is in vain for safety. Neither shall it deliver by any by its great strength. But then verse 18, he then segues into this. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. On those who hope in His mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Let Your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in You. See, there's great promise here. 
great reason to praise. Because He cares. This great and fearful God is the one who intimately cares and loves His people. He can do everything that He wants to do to protect us, to, to save us, to deliver us, to provide all of our care, to be merciful to us. For those who fear Him and trust Him. Notice here the condition there. It's on those who fear Him. He does this. As I've mentioned in the past, fear of God, fear of the Lord is this phrase which is used a number of times in Scripture. It is the beginning of wisdom, the understanding of how to live life in a joyful, godly fashion. But the fear of the Lord is this living in the constant awareness of the presence of God with us. Everything that we do. Knowledge that He is present with us. Always watching, always there, always around And that fear of God takes one of two tracks. On the one hand, it it is all-inspiring, and that one track leads us to worship. The other track is this one that leads us to ethics, how we live life. So living in the fear of God means that we know that He watches over us, and He watches everything we do. He, He is interested in us, and He cares for us. He's listening to what we're listening to. He sees what we are watching. He knows what we're looking at on the internet when you think no one else is. But He also is reassuring in all of of the righteous living for there's nowhere that we can go that we can depart from His presence. If I go into the uttermost parts of the sea, even there He is there. And His right hand holds me. He sees and He affirms us when we make right decisions for His glory. He delights in seeing us turn away from temptations when they are so drawing us. He rejoices when we love another person sacrificially. He rewards us and takes care of all of our needs. And if we're living with this constant awareness of His presence with us, it is a great joy. And it's also a great deterrence. There's the fear of the Lord, but there's also trust here that's given in these last few closing verses. Trust. It's faith that is the arm that receives the promises of God. See, a gift never becomes yours until you receive it. There's no promise in the Scriptures that is for you unless you claim it by faith. And God wants you to do that. Children love receiving gifts and opening presents, and that's why there's a good example here of of trusting agents. They're used as an example of, of trusting faith. The kingdom is said to be such like those who believe as a child. Trusting the Lord is revealed in the Psalms here, uh, in this associative field that's given to us. Those who hope in His mercy to keep them alive, to preserve them, to protect them, to provide for them. Those who wait on the Lord. This waiting is a constant trusting in the Lord. Because He is our help and our protection. He is our help and our shield. Faith in God is integral to who we are as God's children. It is a new part of this 
life that we have. We are a new creature in Christ, and His faith is what has, has now joined us in union with His Son, Jesus. And for those who trust Christ, God deals with us on the same terms as He deals now with His Son. Has a tremendous, tremendous truth which should overwhelm us with awe to give praise to the glory of His wonderful grace. When the armies outnumber you and are stronger than you, when they surround you, your hope in the Lord and the fear of His name will be, be your deliverance. So do not fear what man can do, but trust the Lord and fear Him. And when you see His deliverance, you will erupt in glorious praise. See, it is the, is the sense and the knowledge of His awfulness, His greatness, His goodness, His grace, His mercy, His intimate working in your lives in every detail, and the knowledge of that will bring forth your praise. Rejoice, you peoples, He says. Sing unto the Lord the new song. Stir it up and give it fresh meaning and application in your life. Get a hold of who God is. See Him working and give Him the praise. We are called to praise the Lord. We are not called to be a people that is characterized by sadness who do not praise the Lord. Or people that are fearful who do not praise the Lord. Or bitter people who don't praise the Lord. Or angry people who do not praise the Lord. Or worried people because they can't praise the Lord. Or complaining people who don't want to praise the Lord. We are called to be a people who fear the Lord. A people who rejoice in Him. A musical people that sing to Him. A joyful people that loves His attributes and His sovereignty over all of His creation. Who rejoice in His beauty and praise His truth and cherish His goodness. A people that are ever learning of God. Filled with fresh awe of Him. And the things that we learn which springs forth from our heart out of our mouth into praise. A praise that brings us a greater delight in the God that we praise. May God be pleased to increase our praise as He increases our delight in Him and a joy to search Him out and to know Him more each day. Our gracious Father, we have great need this morning that you would minister to our hearts, that we would search out the things of God, and in so doing, be overwhelmed with who you are. In the moment that we find ourselves at the end of ourselves and see the grandness and greatness of God, may our hearts spring forth with doxology as we search out the mysteries of the universe that You've created and we, we learn something new that we've never seen before, but that was there all along, we can see the handiwork of our God behind it who is its Creator. As we consider that 
the history and how you have governed the affairs of this world since the very beginning. And we find that we are 2,000 years on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We give you praise for what you have done in history and with your providence in your church. Lord, this you are the author of life. You're the author of history. You are the author of creation and science. And we yield ourselves to your sovereign will, knowing that in it you work all good things. And we pray that our minds would comprehend this and to such a degree our hearts are affected and our emotions are energized to bring forth joyful praise and to sing of our great God in all of His glory. May we see what You have done for us in Christ against the backdrop of the heinous sinful person that we were. That we can turn away from ourselves unto the grandness of the glory of His grace. And we can know the Spirit within us crying out, Abba, Father, and know that God the Creator wants to be in a personal, familial relationship with us. To such a degree, He takes care of all of our needs. Feeds us with food. Provides for everything that we need for life and godliness. With the assurances that come along with these promises. We thank You, our Father. We praise Your holy name. We give you all the glory and the honor because all of the power and the kingdom is yours. We pray all these things in your Son's holy name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.